No Stupid Questions is sponsored by Ulta Beauty. This AAPI Heritage Month, Ulta Beauty is celebrating the joy of belonging, belonging to a community composed of intricate connections, belonging to the heritage and birthright that is beauty. Ulta Beauty spotlights the AAPI community passing the mic to brand founders and creators to tell their stories centered on heritage, joy, and beauty. Shop AAPI-owned and founded brands at Ulta Beauty Stores and Ulta.com. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. How would you like to work at a podcast, young lady? <laughs> Is that the question? I'm Angela Duckworth. I'm Stephen Dubner. And And you're you're listening listening to No Stupid Stupid Questions. Questions. Today on the show, when it comes to decision-making, is it better to maximize or satisfice? Can I ask, is synonym for maximizer pain in the ass? (laughs) Also, what is the ideal interview question? Oh, I noticed you've got a Phillies hat on. Are you from Philadelphia? And then all of a sudden, an hour has gone by and the interview is over. Angela Duckworth, I have a question for you today. Shoot. I want to know whether you are a maximizer or a satisficer and why. And while you answer, I want you to explain maximizing and satisficing, where it comes from, what it means. I am a maximizer. I had a feeling. Yeah, you knew me. So that means that when it comes to my work, I am trying to do better and better and better. That's what maximizers do. They try to maximize. Better and better and better compared to your previous self or better compared to other people? Compared to my previous self. And I think that's generally what maximizers are trying to do. Basically, they're trying to optimize outcomes. And that's the intuitive answer, at least the way economists think about human beings making choices. Like, of course, you're trying to get the best ice cream cone, have the best outcomes. But satisficing is a more recent idea. It comes from Nobel laureate Herb Simon. He won the Nobel Prize for economics, but he was really more of a psychologist, decision scientist. And Simon coined this term satisficing for a very different process. You're not trying to get the best or do the best or choose the best. You're trying to choose good enough. So what's so interesting is even as you're describing it, you've got a sneer in your voice. I know. I have (laughs) maximizing tendencies, probably in lots of domains, especially in my work. When asked, are you the kind of person who settles for good enough? Every cell in my body says, no, why would I do that? All right. Let me transfer you virtually to a totally different domain. Let's say you and I We're hungry. We've been working together and we need to get a bite to eat. Do you remain a maximizer there? I am absolutely a maximizer. I want to know that within a certain X block radius, I have chosen the best restaurant, including lots of parameters like price, so value for money. And not only that, Stephen, I want to know that I ordered the best thing on the menu for me at that time in my life. Can I ask, is synonym for maximizer pain in the ass? (laughs) I have to say, I can't even help it. I literally say sometimes when I'm staring at a menu, oh, I wonder what the best thing is. And I'm usually the one asking the waiter or the waitress, what's the best thing that you serve here? Whenever I ask something like that, the answer I get is people seem to like the chicken. (laughs) Yeah, but it's like, what do you mean people seem (laughs) to like it? It wasn't that hard of a question. Well, Stephen, are you a satisfier? I mean, you ask me these questions like you're suspicious of my maximizing tendencies. I have to say I'm not so surprised that you're a maximizer, especially in a professional realm. 
And look what I study, Stephen. I study excellence. And I admire you and everybody else who wants to maximize. And it doesn't have to be a professional setting. If you're a volunteer, if you're a parent, I very much appreciate the urge to maximize. And I share that urge in many realms some of the time. But I also really, really, really appreciate the value of satisficing. Okay, give me an example. I'll take our same example. You and me going out for a bite to eat. We're both hungry. So now I'm starting to think about what is the opportunity cost of maximizing? How long do we have to stand here looking on our phones to find the place that has an eighth of a star higher rating? And then we have to debate the merits of Yelp versus whatever ratings to see, well, how can we tell what's the best actual empirical evidence of this when I say to myself, it's just a meal? And this perfectly good cart over here can serve us chicken on rice. Right. Let's have some dirty water hot dogs and be done with (laughs) it. Call it a day. I mean, this is really about decision making. Every decision is different. If you're talking about choosing a life partner or a vocation, let's do some maximizing. If you're talking about lunch, I'm okay with some satisfying. And then there are many, many things in between. So I was exposed to this idea of maximizing and satisfying, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago from psychologist Barry Schwartz. And to me, it was a very useful concept because... I do feel I'm a maximizer in certain realms, especially when it comes to work, things that I care about or my family. But then I just started to feel like if you think economically, I wanted to come up with categories of life where I consciously wanted to be a satisficer. And so to me, that seemed like a very logical bifurcation. So first of all, what do you have to say about his view of maximizing and satisfying as it pertains to, let's say, happiness or satisfaction. And then let's talk about how you can move from one realm to the other, if you so desire. Barry is a great psychologist, and he teamed up with some other psychologists, and he created a scale for testing whether you are a maximizer or a satisficer and where in that continuum you fall. And on his scale, he has items like, I never settle for second best, or when I watch TV, I channel surf, scanning through available options, not easily settling on one. And I remember reading that scale and then quizzing myself and thinking, oh my gosh, I answered maximizer for for every single one. And then when I read the article, it was a little worrisome because it turns out that in general, it's the satisficers who are happier. They may not have have more money, but they actually might feel okay about that. They're more likely to be satisfied with their work, etc. So to me, when I finished that article, I thought, well, I guess they're trade-offs. So high standards, maybe on objective grounds, things are better, but you don't feel good. And I didn't change my mind about being a maximizer. I didn't think like, oh, I should be more satisficing. There must be some areas in which you're a satisficer. Well, look, I'm a satisficer when it comes to exercise, physical exercise. I'm not the sort of person who's trying to get better in any athletic domain. You just want to tick the box. I got my exercise done. You know, I think it was Ben Franklin who said that if you exercise to the point where like you're a little warm, you just (laughs) raise your body temperature by two or three degrees. You've probably had a workout, and I'm in that camp. You think Ben Franklin said that? You know, he didn't really look very fit. I mean, didn't he die of gout? Sounds yeah. about right. <laughs> okay, so I'm a satisficer, whether for good or for bad, when it comes to my physical exercise regime. I'm not optimizing there. And is that because that's an activity that you enjoy less, that you assign less importance to? I think it must be in part because I don't care. I don't want to die. Well, you're gonna. <laughs> Hate to give away the end of the story. But maybe I'll die a little later because I'm getting my little middle-aged workout. 
during the day sometimes. I'm trying to think if there's anything else I don't care about. There's so many domains in my life, like what I would cook for our family dinner tonight, the emails that I write, my professional life. I'm kind of hard-pressed to find many domains in my life where I don't care. I think you have the right answer, though, which is it's probably good to be deliberate. Like, where am I going to be a maximizer? And because it is exhausting and time is finite, where am I going to give a little? I'm just struggling to figure out which of the domains. Can you help me? How about this? You say that you're a maximizer even when it comes to your next meal. What if you take one meal a day and try to be a satisficer for that meal? Just a good enough person. And say, you know what, rather than spend the time thinking about this, trying to optimize, I'm going to eat the first thing that looks decent. (laughs) <laughs> and see how that feels. I mean, would you really do that? Would I do that? Yeah. Oh, I do that all the you time. You do that now? I love food, but there are times when I say, I've been working really hard. I'm so hungry, I'm getting a headache. I need to eat. If there's the choice between I could order from the Japanese place and get a really nice, robust, healthy, delicious thing, or I can eat the can of sardines and get back to my work. You're going to go with sardines. I'm going to go sardines maybe two out of four times. Or one out of two times. That would be another another way to put it. Or five out of ten times. Bad with fractions. Good with sardines. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Look, I'm sure I'm just ignoring all the areas in my life where I'm satisficing. Maybe that's a feature of satisficing. You don't think about this choice very much. That's the point of satisficing. You save time and energy. Well, let me ask you this. I believe Barry Schwartz wrote about the fact that people tend to become more satisficers as they get older. Yeah, he did. He thinks that's why we get happier. Our standards go south. I think there's a different way of looking at that. It's not that you settle. I think it's about choosing to care less about things that matter less. Yeah, it's a little more Buddhist. Like, it's not just that you're settling, but you've sort of unchained yourself. Barry Schwartz also believes that in so many ways, the idea of having more choices, maximizing our choices, these things that are supposed to lead to greater and greater happiness, they don't. And that in some cases, having 24 kinds of jam to choose from would be worse than having, say, three kinds of jam to choose from, you know, in terms of your happiness. So this is the paradox of choice illustration, and it was based on a real experiment in California where all these jars of jam, and when there were 24 or whatever, shoppers would look more and buy less. Yeah. But that doesn't necessarily mean they're happier to have jam. It's a contentious area of literature, but there are certainly some research studies that suggest that when you come home with your jam after deliberating, you're actually less happy with your jam relative to others. Different study, just using jam as the example. Okay, so let me ask you one last question. I've asked you to envision yourself trying to move in one realm from maximizing to satisficing by eating whatever shows up for breakfast tomorrow. What about the opposite? Now, you don't have this problem, but let's say somebody out there is listening and say, you know what? I hear Angela talking about this, and I never really thought about satisficing versus maximizing. I've satisficed a lot, and I'm not happy with it. I want to learn to maximize. So do you have any advice for a would-be maximalist? Well, it might be off-putting to think like, wow, living life like a maximizer, that sounds exhausting. It sounds like a world of unhappiness. But maybe I could just offer my own personal experience, which is I wake up every day and I want it to be better than the day before. And I do understand why people from the outside would say it's exhausting, but I find it exhilarating. And maybe if I could just share with people that they might say, today, just for one day, let me try it as a maximizer. And and if I don't like it, I can retreat into my little satisfying shell 
she says derisively. <laughs> All warm and safe. <laughs> so you're saying that you find your maximizing very satisfying, more satisfying than satisficing, and that if satisficers would try to maximize more, they would find that their satisfaction might also rise by leaving behind satisficing. <laughs> they might. Still to come on No Stupid Questions, what kind of job interview questions are really worth asking? How many golfers? How many balls do you use? What's the age range that plays golf? No Stupid Questions is sponsored by Rosetta Stone. Traveling is so much more meaningful when you understand the language of the place you're visiting. Rosetta Stone, one of the most trusted language learning programs, has helped millions learn new languages and can help you too. With Rosetta Stone, you'll learn intuitively. You're trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your chosen language. You'll be prepared for real, authentic conversations. Plus, their True Accent feature gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with the Rosetta Stone app, you can learn anytime, anywhere, with customizable lessons as short as 10 minutes. For a very limited time, our listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash questions. That's rosettastone.com slash questions. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Stephen, I have a question about interviews. Interviews like interviewing for a job or interviewing people for journalism? Of course, I must specify I'm talking to Stephen Dubner. Job interviews, and in this case, I am not looking for a job. I am hiring people. So I've been doing job interviews. This is an academic, a research position? Yep, new people to work at Character Lab. And here's my question for you. What is the best job interview question you have ever asked? So I'm not a manager person, but I do like questions that have a little bit of logic, a little bit of numeracy, and a little bit of like just watching someone think. So here's one question I read a long time ago that I loved. I'll just ask you, Angela, I'm interviewing you. Let's say it's for Freakonomics Radio. Okay. How would you like to work at a podcast, young lady? <laughs> Is that the question? The answer would be yes. So here's the question. Let's say one day you're um, riding to work on the subway or the bus and you see someone sitting near you, say a middle-aged woman, and she's reading. She's got her nose buried in this book, and she's got her hair drawn back and these thick glasses. And right next to her, she's got a big tote bag filled with more books. What's more likely, that she is a librarian or a salesperson? This is like a Danny Kahneman question, right? It's a Danny Kahneman type of question. So I'm supposed to answer with base rates. So I have to think that there are, I think, more salespeople than there are librarians. Many more. And therefore, 
that person is more likely a salesperson, even though there's this salient cue like books, librarian, must be a librarian. So I'm going to go with salesperson. So I would be much more likely to want to hire you now just because you know what base rate means for one. And for those who don't know who Danny Kahneman is and what he's done, just describe a bit, please. Danny Kahneman is a recipient of the Nobel Prize in economics, even though he's a world-class psychologist. He's one of a handful of economics prize winners who is not an economist. Correct. Right. So to many people, when you ask them that question, it's plainly a leading question. You're plainly trying to not have it be a librarian. But then what you want someone to do is talk it through and get to the logic. So the logic is pretty simple. And then you want to hear how numerate people are. Yeah. So the fact is there are something like 150 librarians in America and 18 million salespeople. So the odds are that any given person who happens to be reading a book and they look a little bit studious, even if they're female and librarians are about 80% female, even so, they used to be about 50-50, by the way, if you go back 100 years. If you said all that in an interview, I would be like, wow, this person isn't just smart and nice. They're encyclopedic in their knowledge. But they know some stuff, yeah. Well, you know what you're reminding me of? I was finishing up a master's degree, and I decided for whatever reason that— Was it that your master's degree? It was my own master's degree. I was at Oxford. Here, let me help you with that, buddy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was not finishing up someone else's master's. I'm not that nice. And I decided I wanted to work at McKinsey Consulting. And I remember that the interview was all of these sort of like logic slash fractions problems, right? I think this was the question I was asked. How many golf balls are sold in the United States every year? And, you know, the logic part is you have to think like... How many golfers? How many balls do you use? What's the age range that plays golf? The math part comes where you multiply fractions, one out of four people. Whatever That kind of question is sometimes called a Fermi question, because I guess Fermi would ask these questions. I bet his were better than golf balls, though. (laughs) I bet he was really good at it. I think physicists ask really good questions. So do economists. So do psychologists. Yes. But I will say this. Whenever you look at the list of questions that actual HR people ask actual would-be employees, I'll be honest with you, I cringe a little bit. So here are the top five most common interview questions. What are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? Why are you interested in working for our firm? Where do you see yourself in five years, 10 years? And why do you want to leave your current company? So personally, I think the strengths and weaknesses, I just think they're not going to draw much good material. Where are you going to be in five or 10 years? Of the five, I like that the best. I've heard good answers to that. I do ask some version of that to people. I think like most people, I'm not looking for the quote right answer. I'm looking for a revealing answer. I'm looking for something that tells me in a relatively short time about character, depth, curiosity. On the other hand, I know Danny Kahneman, who you mentioned, he's argued that when you're interviewing, you want a structured interview, almost a survey, really, right? I think it's not only Danny Kahneman, but, you know, there's a consensus in social scientists that what's typically done is the unstructured interview, which is like person walks in, you strike up a conversation. You're like, oh, I noticed you've got a Phillies hat on. Are you from Philadelphia? And then the conversation's a random walk through topics. And then all of a sudden, an hour has gone by and the interview's over. That's what most interviews probably are like in America. And the consensus in social science is not only do they not add much predictive value to hiring the right person, but like 
in many cases could detract value. In other words, if you hadn't interviewed the person at all, you would have been better off as an employer. Because you're basically building up an image, a projection based on kind of garbage. Well, I think the idea is this. You can come out of an hour-long interaction with another human being with a really strong, visceral, and emotional liking or disliking for that person, and then you could overweight it. You could ignore things like, well, the resume is not so strong, and I don't know, the recommendations were iffy, but God, we had this great conversation about the Phillies. So, for what it's worth, when we hire a Free Economics Radio or Associated Project, we just do mostly written homework. We ask them, tell us about an episode that you liked of ours and why, and tell us an episode you thought was really bad and why. Oh, I like that. Oh, thanks. I'm glad you approved. We should have probably run these by you before we started using them. And then we asked for some other homework, like to propose some ideas and how you'd go about executing them and so on. So like you, I'm pretty skeptical that interviews are going to add a lot of value in the decision process. And like Danny Kahneman and many others, I worry that they could actually provide negative value. And what you just proposed, which is, of course, not an interview question per se, it's really something else. I think that's called a work sample. And I think there's like a mountain of research showing that unlike unstructured interviews, work samples, which are just like, hey, you're going to have to do X. Could you do a little of X now? And let me see how it goes. Those are really good. And I recognize that the world being as diverse as it is, every job is different. Every industry is different. You can't always get that. But when I was hired by the New York Times many years ago, the size of the work sample was unbelievable. What did they ask you to do? Do you remember? So I was interviewing for an editor at the Sunday magazine. I don't remember all the details, but I had to propose a number of story ideas attached to each idea, a writer that I would want to assign and kind of conceive that whole thing. But then there was also just a lot of editing. So I would be given manuscripts of eight or 10,000 words and you'd be given just a paper copy. So you can't use Microsoft Word track changes, not Google Doc. Like a red pencil. So the first thing I did was I made about 10 photocopies because I knew it was going to take many drafts to get it where my comments were good. Then your comments are handwritten all over it. And then your taping pieces of paper into the margins for where you need to handwrite another 200 words. And then you're having all these arrow diagrams to show, no, this paragraph that's now appearing at the beginning of the third section needs to actually be the first paragraph of the second section. So basically, I did probably a week or two's worth of editing just to kind of get to the third of what turned out to be seven interviews. To me, that makes a lot of sense. I think the logic is, if you're going to ask someone to be an editor, why don't you see how they edit, as opposed to, let's see if I can have a 45-minute conversation with them. So if you're interviewing yourself, or if you could choose, what's the one question you would be most excited to be asked? You know the question, and I know this is really meta, so I hope it doesn't explode your brain, but if I were interviewing someone, I would ask them this question— Tell me the question that I should ask you that's going to make me hire you. And I actually got this idea from someone who I did hire and is fantastic. He runs Character Lab. And he said, if I had asked him, will you eat, breathe, drink, and sleep your work, he would have said 100%. And, you know, metaphorically, he does. I have to say, if you were not a mid-career, accomplished, big-name professor at the University of Pennsylvania, I would definitely offer you a job. At least a summer internship. <laughs> no Stupid Questions is part of the Freakonomics Radio Network. This episode was produced by me, Rebecca Lee Douglas. And now, here's a fact check of today's conversations. 
Angela says that Ben Franklin was an advocate for mild exercise. Franklin was an avid swimmer and, as a boy, he built flippers to propel himself through the water. Remarkably, in 1968, Franklin was posthumously inducted into the International Swimming Hall of Fame. However, he did struggle with health issues and suffered from obesity. He developed gout, which he personified in a satirical conversation entitled Dialogue Between Franklin and Gout. In the piece, Franklin says to Gout, It is not fair to say I take no exercise when I do very often, going out to dine and returning in my carriage. The disease was not ultimately his cause of death, as Angela surmised. Franklin died of pleurisy at his home in Philadelphia in 1790. During Stephen's librarian or salesperson hypothetical, he says that there are 18 million salespeople in the United States, which is about right. But then he says that there are only about 150 librarians. Clearly, Stephen was misspeaking. It would be a very sad world if we only had three librarians per state. So apologies to the librarians of the country. Stephen likely meant to guess 150,000 librarians, which is roughly accurate. Finally, Angela refers to the question how many golf balls are sold in the United States each year, which, in case you're curious, is about 30 million. She called the question a Fermi question. A Fermi question is a quickly calculated estimate of something that's hard to measure directly. It's named for the famous physicist Enrico Fermi, who was known for his impressive ability to quickly approximate difficult scientific calculations. The Drake equation is one famous example of a Fermi question. The Drake equation tries to determine the likelihood that we'll make contact with intelligent alien life forms by estimating the number of actively communicative extraterrestrial civilizations in our galaxy. So, in case you're asked to do this at your next job interview, just multiply the average rate of star formation in our galaxy by the fraction of those stars that have planets by the average number of planets per solar system with an environment suitable for life, by the fraction of planets with life that actually go on to develop civilizations, by the fraction of civilizations that develop technology that releases detectable signs of their existence into space, by the length of time for which such civilizations release detectable signals into space. I'm glad Freakonomics Radio relies on work samples, because if they had asked that question, I would be out of a job. That's it for the fact check. No Stupid Questions is produced by Freakonomics Radio and Stitcher. Our staff includes Allison Craiglow, Greg Rippin, James Foster, and Corinne Wallace. Our theme song is And She Was by Talking Heads. Special thanks to David Byrne and Warner Chapel Music. If you'd like to listen to the show ad-free, subscribe to Stitcher Premium. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at NSQ underscore show and on Facebook at NSQ show. Also, if you heard Stephen or Angela refer to something that you'd like to learn more about, you can check out Freakonomics.com slash NSQ, where we provide links to all of the studies and experts you heard here today. Thanks for listening. Well, look, I'm just one person. No, you're not. I'm two people. (laughs) That's a whole other conversation. I can have it with myself. Stitcher. Want to make mom's day? Get to your Nordstrom Rack now and score amazing deals for Mother's Day, which is Sunday, May 12th. Find tons of gifts from only $30 at Nordstrom Rack. Fragrance, jewelry, luxury bags, activewear, beauty, and more. Save on Kate Spade, New York, Stuart Weitzman, and Ted Baker, London. Great brands, great prices. So shop your Nordstrom Rack store today and treat mom to the good stuff from just $30. 
Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.